When Lindsay went in for her 20-week ultrasound, she had no idea that she was going to find out much more than just the gender of her third child. As Lindsay laid on the exam table in her paper gown with her husband and two children by her side, the doctor informed them that their new baby boy had hypoplastic left heart syndrome and his odds of survival were not good. That baby is now seven years old and his name is Lincoln. This was the beginning of their 22Q journey. Uh, Welcome to the 22Q podcast. My name is Becky White, and today I am so excited to have Lindsay on with us. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Becky. Thanks for having me. Uh, So happy to have you. I met Lindsay through the 22Q Family Foundation Moms Retreat, and needless to say, she's amazing. So today, Lindsay, can you just introduce yourself, where you're from? Tell us a little bit about your family. I um first of all, my name is Lindsay Head. I am from Carmel, Indiana. Um, and those of you who are not familiar with the area that's just north of Indianapolis, I feel like Indiana is a place that unless you live here, you don't really travel to unless you have a work-related um place to be, or you kind of travel through Indiana to get to fun places like Florida. <laughs> we are like a spot on the map that um not many people know about except for like the Indy 500. And uh, my husband, Adam, is a nurse at our VA hospital. So he is working with the um, elderly veterans populations. He really enjoys it, feels like he's giving back. He's a veteran himself. So he feels like he can really relate to them and make a difference. We have three amazing children. Our oldest daughter, Cadence, is 17, and she will be graduating this year, which is kind of mind-blowing a little bit. She has her set her heart set on being a veterinarian. Um, she has not changed that since she was about 14, so uh, fingers crossed she can follow through, and I will be, we'll be very supportive and exciting to see, like, what happens with that dream. Our middle son, Kale, is 14. He is a freshman at a private uh, high school here in Carmel. And he is doing very well, just funny, very chill, um, likable guy to be around. Like we're kind of entering this stage with our older two teenagers that they're like fun, more like a friendship hanging around instead of just so much like work. And we're kind of out of the keeping them alive stage, which is... um, just different, but very fun as well. And then we have Lincoln, who is seven and soon to be eight, right before Christmas. He is our 22 cutie. Seven and a half, I'm told. That was a very big deal. Um, He is just so joyful, like just radiates joy. He never meets a stranger. Um, so he's never had strange danger. And probably never will. That's just not in his personality. But I will say we meet all kinds of people and I learn all about them because he is just genuinely curious about them. He will just go up to random people while we're out, no matter where we are, um, in our town, on vacation, in the grocery store, at doctor's appointments, you know, and he, he really wants to know who people are and their names and um, if they have kids and where they live and if they have dogs. <laughs> Do you have any funny stories of him approaching maybe a stranger and saying something that is funny? 
you know, people give us mixed reactions, adults do. Now that his speech is a little bit easier to understand, um, generally people are very open to him. But before it was very intelligible, I got a lot of kind of shocked expressions and just like almost panicked. People look at me like they just weren't sure what to do. Like, who's this little kid coming up to me that would, he would just give a hug and have no idea who this person is. Um, or he would be rambling about something and I didn't know what he was saying. They didn't know what he was saying. And then that led on to another conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, so we get very mixed reviews. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing your beautiful family with us. And thank you to your husband for his service. Um, and I appreciate that. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do for work? So I am the executive director is my official title and also co-owner of Therapy Redefined. And that is a small private pediatric therapy clinic here in Carmel. We have an amazing team of therapists who offer speech therapy, feeding therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. Mm -hmm. So I um, kind of live and breathe in this world of uh, special needs and extra needs and So I um, have been kind of in this world, I feel like one foot in this world and one foot in healthcare since Lincoln was born. So previous to having Lincoln, um, most of my professional career has been in healthcare in some form or another. When we decided to expand our family from two kids to three, we had a hard time getting pregnant, which was not the case for the first two. So I thought, well, what better time to go back to school full time? Um, I really loved healthcare. I felt like I made a difference. I really had a passion for orthopedics. So at that time I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to school to be a physician assistant. I, I feel like I have a strong hold on what this looks like, what the responsibility is and how I can make a difference um, in people's lives. And so then a year into school full time for that um, is when I got pregnant with Lincoln after a very long time of trying. Um, so that was a surprise, <laughs> but a great right. one. Yeah. Um, and I get very sick with my pregnancies and I feel like yeah. each child I've had, I get more and more sick. Oh. So the timing of it, I was just kind of finishing up finals that first year and just starting to really feel yucky. And I thought, okay, you know, we, we did the first initial doctor's appointment and so I was to kind of doing what I knew my body could tolerate and just kind of keeping my head above water um, before we got any kind of diagnoses or anything. And I thought, okay, well, I can, I can do this. I can take the next fall semester off and then come back in the spring and we'll just be delayed a semester. No big deal. I can have my cake and eat it too. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, so we get pregnant. I finished that first year of school and over the summer, I'm just really, really sick. Like, like morning sickness on steroids, just Ugh. all the, all the time, no relief. And at the time I had a nine and six year old. Wow. So trying to keep them entertained and trying to keep their life as normal as possible while being very ill was very hard because at that time, um, you know, Adam was a nurse, he graduated as a nurse and he was working, you know, 12 hour shifts and everything. So I had been going to the doctor a lot anyway. And I, they finally put me on a Zofran pump with him. 
And so what that looks like is a very um, small like fanny pack kind of that I would wear all mm -hmm. the time that had a syringe in it with Zofran, which is a medication to help with nausea um, that was continually pumping into my body. Wow. So it was like a small needle with a suction cup almost that I would put um, around my belly. I'd have to change it every day. Um, mm -hmm. And that was the only thing that really kept me alive during that time because I just wow. couldn't keep anything down. So it was several trips um, of getting, going to the hospital to get IV fluids and vitamins and just just really yucky. <laughs> yeah. And did that continue? Not just the first trimester, just second and third. Yes. So I was wow. able to, that was mo mostly first and second trimester. By the end of the second trimester, I was able to ditch the pump, which was great. Wow. And then manage just with oral medication. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I never got to experience the fun, like pregnancy cravings with actually any of my kids, just because I was doing good to keep everything down. And that's just, I think genetically how my body handles it, but it's definitely like each child I've had, it just got worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is so much. And at the time, did you have any idea of Link's diagnosis yet? So I didn't. Um, and I would say, so at the other than being sick, I didn't have any problems with blood sugar or high blood pressure or any other really complications um, mm -hmm. other than I just was sick, like all the right. time. Um, so we go into our 20 week ultrasound and we had, we were very excited. We weren't, we weren't going to find out what the gender of the baby was. We thought, okay, this is our tiebreaker. We already had a daughter, we had a son and we were going to see what it was. Um, I was the only one that had that opinion. My husband and my other two children really wanted to know what it was going to be. So they kind of wore me down. So during that appointment, I actually caved and I was like, okay, we can find out what it is. So honestly, we have had very healthy, our other two children were very healthy pregnancies other than um, the, you're going to have to look up this diagnosis and how to pronounce it, but the, is a hyper, hyperemesis, great gravium. That's okay. what it was. That's what it was. Okay. Um, other than that, you know, we had very easy pregnancies. There wasn't really any complications. We don't have any family history of really anything that we know of per se. So we went into the 20 week ultrasound, had the older two with us. Um, and this is going to sound kind of shallow, but like our, we were just, just checking the box. Like you go in, you, they measure the baby, they measure you, make sure everything's okay. You check the box and you leave and you know what you're having and you go from there. So we went in and I give all the credit to this ultrasound tech. Um, again, I've worked in healthcare, so I kind of know the, the ins and outs and looks that you give and what you don't say and how you exit a room without alerting a family. Um, so she, I wish I could remember her name, but she was amazing. And I honestly did not, um, expect anything. So she's scanning me and she's like, okay, you know, measuring. Um, and then she said, do you want to know what you're having? And I was like, sure. You know, everyone's excited. So she scans over and she's like, okay, here, here's your baby. And I was like, okay. I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> so she actually had to tell me, oh, you're having a boy. I was like, okay, great. We're very excited. And then she said, okay, I'm going to 
I'll be right back. And she leaves. And I was like, okay, we're done. She's going to see when I need to come back for my next appointment or whatever, not thinking anything of it. She comes back in with a doctor who had a very um, kind of look of panic on their face. And that's when my heart just dropped. I knew something was wrong. And I thought, okay, well, I can feel him in there kicking and his heart is beating. So it's not, that was my immediate thought was, did we lose this baby um, and everything? So I was like, what's going on? She's like, well, there's just some, some things a little bit different with his heart. I was like, okay. So again, the, the doctor goes in there and, and checks a few things and um, they left the room again after they were done. Um, and then she said, okay, we need to have basically an appointment with the physician. Cause at that time it was just an appointment with the tech. And I was like, all right. So I'm sitting there in the paper gown or whatever, just trying to like hold it together, not freak out. Cause my other two have no idea what's happening at this point. They're just in the doctor's appointment with mom and dad. So I get dressed and they take me to um, an official clinic room um, where a, a separate doctor from this group who I had never met and the poor guy, I feel so bad for him, like looking back at him, he, he walks in this room, has a very long, sorrowful look on his face. And he looks at me and he says, your baby has hypoplastic left heart syndrome. I had never heard this word before. Um, my husband had never heard of it, but I figured it was bad. Um, so again, he said, we need to get you to the high risk uh, group and you're going to get a fetal echo, echo done by one of the uh, pediatric cardiologists who just happened to be there that day, which is crazy because typically wow. you have to schedule an appointment with these people weeks ahead of time. Yeah. So the fact that they got me in right then and there and that day was amazing. So we go up uh, another floor of the hospital. Um, we go into another ultrasound room. This one has much um, bigger screens, more equipment in there. And I met our pediatric cardiologist for the first time. Her name is Dr. Ann Farrell, and she's just a super great person and a super great human. And she will just kind of tell you how it is and not really sugarcoat anything, but that's okay. That's what I needed at the time. And she said, okay, do you know why you're here? And my husband and I were like, well, we were told he has this. We have, we just learned about it five minutes ago. We have no idea what's happening. Um, and she said, okay, so he has hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So what that means is the left side of a healthy heart is typically the larger side. That's what does all of the work, um, pushing the blood out, oxygenated blood out of your heart into your body so that your body can grow and then bringing all that back into the heart and kind of recirculating everything. In Lincoln's heart, the left side was much smaller than the right side. Um, on top of that, he had an interrupted aortic arch so another part of the heart that is um, very important for growth and blood flow in the right direction. And, and I could go into more, but um, she said with this diagnosis, 
typically as a pregnancy goes on, the left side of the heart will keep shrinking and shrinking. And it kind of just form will form this like nugget of the side of the heart that just doesn't function. It's just kind of a useless clump of tissue. So he will be born with half a heart. And my, that's when I just lost it. Like I had no idea what we we're up against. It didn't sound good. We weren't given great odds. And she said he will need a series of three surgeries to fix this. The first being, you know, maybe day two of his life. Um, and then after going through what that looks like and the risks involved and the outcomes, they still weren't great. They were, they were pretty dumb. And she looked at me and she said, um, this was all pre like Roe versus Wade turnover. So again, do it that way with what you want. I don't know if you want to put that in there, Yeah. but at the time, um, she just said, I, I really want you guys to consider your options. This, in my experience, this is what it looks like. She told us of a story of another child that she treated, um, that had the same thing and had his surgery and at discharge from the hospital, from the first surgery, like everything was going fine. Um, he went to bear down to have a bowel movement in his car seat and passed away because his heart just could not tolerate the amount of repair that it needed. Um, so she just, she just kept telling us, consider your options. You, you know, you'll go on to have um, other healthy children. And I don't, I don't blame her for that. There's no hard feelings there. It's just, it is, you know, it is what it is. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And in that moment, when she's saying this to you, cause I think it's important to share this and thank you for sharing that because I feel that in the 22 Q community, many families have had that question asked. And when we do find out the diagnosis, if you find out before they are here and delivered in that moment, when she says this to you, what did you and your husband do? What are you thinking in that moment? So my immediate gut reaction was like, well, that's not an option for us. Like, even if his odds aren't great, that's just us personally, where we stand, that's just not an option for us. Um, we're going to give him the best chance that he can get and, and just see where it takes us. Um, so I was completely just a hot mess. My husband was a mess also, but able to hold it together a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And after that visit, I'm sure there were many, I don't want to speak for you, but yes. I'm assuming many doctors appointments, yes. many ultrasounds yep. leading up to, and when Lincoln's delivery date was here, can you tell us like where you delivered and what that day was like for you and your family? Yes. So that was followed up with weekly ultrasounds. Um, and weekly measurements of his heart to see what it was doing. And then she actually ended up changing his diagnosis a little bit from that 20 week ultrasound to right before he was born. She said, you know, his, the left side of his heart is actually still growing. It's still small, but it's growing at the appropriate rate as like the right side. So it wasn't shrinking into this small mass of useless tissue that she thought was going to happen. So right before she, uh, he was born, she said, this looks more like Schoen's complex, which just means that you have three or more defects on the left side of the heart. Um, he has some valve issues. He has the aortic arch issues. And then the left side is still considered hypoplastic, which just means small. 
So the left side is still small. He still has the aortic arch issues and some valve issues. So she said, we need to have you scheduled um, for delivery and we need a full staff. And my original due date was right around New Year's. And she said, we cannot have a skeleton crew when he's born. We needed our team that's already been involved. Um, so you need to pick a, your due date. So that was hard. Um, because I thought, okay, well, I have this six and nine-year-old um, that falls right around Christmas. I didn't want to totally disrupt that for them, knowing that it wouldn't be just this year. It would be every year that follows from here on out. So I picked the I keep saying I, Adam and I made these decisions together. <laughs> so we, we picked the latest date we felt we could before Christmas, because I wanted to give Lincoln the best chance at growing and right. just every day in utero that I could. So we chose to have him on December 23rd, um, because that was a date, the pretty much the last day before everyone kind of takes time off for the holidays. So he was born at um, Methodist Hospital. It's a one of the top trauma hospitals um, in our area because our local children's hospital at that time did not have a wing for high-risk pregnancies. So unfortunately, that meant that I had him at one hospital and then he was immediately packaged up and delivered to our children's hospital. Everything was scheduled. Um, so I went in, was induced. I had him, I got to hold him for about maybe two minutes before they had to kind of whisk him away. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing I noticed about him, he was tiny, like for me, I tend to grow big babies and he was just at six pounds. So for me, that was, and he was full term, that was small, but I, when they gave him to me, I noticed how tiny his mouth was even for a newborn, I thought, and I looked at my husband, I was like, look how little his mouth is. I mean, it was just this little like dot on his face, which in hindsight is a sign of 22Q, but we didn't know about any of the genetics yet because our cardiologist kept, Dr. Farrell, she kept saying from the 20 week ultrasound and on every time we would see her, which was a lot, you need to go see genetics or you need to have genetic testing done. And at that time we were like, why, why do we need to have this done? Like we can't even get our head wrapped around like this whole heart issue and that his odds aren't great anyway. So why do we need to put a name on it? Because it's not going to change anything for us. It's not going to change what direction that we're going with him. Um, so she just kept saying, you need to go, you need to go. So we had him um, fairly uneventful delivery for the most part. Um, he was packaged up into this little baby spaceship is what I call it and had a crew of probably seven or eight people with him. I told my husband, I said, go with him. Like, I'm okay. Like, you know, my mom was there with us. So she stayed with me. He went with Lincoln. They took him over to the children's hospital. And what was then, that moment like for you? That moment wasn't as hard. Like it was hard for sure, but that wasn't, you know, they, they took him and were, I knew he was in good hands. And then my mom stayed with me, you know, and got me, made sure I was settled in my room and 
it had been a very long 24 hours at that point. So I said, go home, get some sleep. Like I'll be okay. Um, and that was hard. It was definitely odd being there delivering and not having your baby. Um, not as hard. Whew, I'm going to like freeze up for a moment. That's okay. These are very important and personal and heavy moments. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm really crying behind this mic. Um, for 22Q family. So you take your time. So the hardest moment for me was actually when I was ready to be discharged and walking out of the hospital, no car seat, no baby. That's hard. And I knew at that time he was at that moment, he was okay. And I knew that. And I thought, okay, this is, this is silly to feel like this huge sense of loss when I know he's just a hospital over mm -hmm. and, and they were very close together like only a couple minutes driving wise apart thankfully mm -hmm. that was super hard and it didn't get I can't say it, it got easier visiting him um in the NICU and having to go home very very difficult mm -hmm. what were those days like for you and your husband would you um, rotate shifts? Would you only go during the day? I know many families do different things. What was, what were those days in the NICU like for you guys? So we took shifts. So I took the day shift. He took the night shift. He's very good at sleeping kind of in any situation. And I cannot, um, and I'm a very light sleeper to begin with. So they did have a Ronald McDonald house there for families um, who need to utilize it. And they choose the families who get to use the rooms um, based on need, I guess. I think a social worker does it. And I, so I got discharged, went to go see him. And I remember her saying, so at this point it's Christmas Eve. And um, she said, I just want to let you know, we reserved a room for you, which was actually in the, in the children's hospital. I said, thank you. Thank you so much. So um Adam and I were there together and he said, okay, I'm going to go home and be with our older two kids and the family Christmas gathering and all that. Um, and you can stay here since you have a room. So I, I spent the day with Lincoln, got him settled in for the night. And then I went down to the um, Ronald McDonald house to my room, which was amazing. Like it looked like a hotel when you walked in, like there was someone to greet you give you a name tag, make sure that you had eaten. If you needed anything, the room was super clean. It was comfortable. They had a sound machine in there, which I so appreciate. <laughs> the you little know, things. Yes. That's amazing. Um, you know, showers, just all kinds of donated stuff from people. And I remember sleeping for a couple hours and I just woke up and was like, I just need to go check on him. So I got up, got dressed, and was able to go up to his room, check on him for a few hours, just peace of mind, know that he was okay. And then I walked back down the hallway to my room and slept a couple more hours and then was out, you know, the next morning. But all in all, he's like our little modern day miracle because to this day, he has never had open heart surgery. Wow. And how rare I, is that for that yes, diagnosis? Yes. I guess I should add when we found out about all his heart stuff, like part of my panic and survival mode was, um, I called our pastor, I called our, uh, house church 
um, leaders and group. And I just said, we really need to have like a night where we're just praying for this baby. Um, I said, this is what the doctors are telling us. This is what science is telling us. Um, but I know there's another option. Mm -hmm. So they, they gathered around us and we had people praying for us in our home across the state, across the country, um, all at the same night. And then they kind of kept that going all through even still. Now, if I needed that, we could, um, make that happen. Yeah. Make that happen again. But I mean, to be, so that was all done. And then to say that he wasn't going to have a good, good odds of making it after he was born to only spend about two weeks in the NICU. He's never had open heart surgery is nothing short of a miracle. And there's and even one of the ultrasound techs um, that we actually ended up seeing in the hospital. She had was one that um, scanned me frequently when I was pregnant. And she said, she looked at me and she said, I just want to let you know that this doesn't happen. She said she was giving him one last ultrasound before they discharged us. And she said, the fact that you were given all of this through pregnancy and the NICU, this is what they were prepared for. And I'm doing this before you guys go home without surgery. This just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I said, I know, I know it doesn't. He's our little miracle baby. And I keep trying to tell everybody about it. And people laugh at me when I say that. And some people have said, oh, surely you got a misdiagnosis or it really mm-hmm. couldn't have been that, that severe. I'm like, yeah. no, no, it was, it was <laughs> and it still is. It's just his little heart is trucking along. And to this day, we just go in for yearly checkups with his cardiologist and to make sure everything is where it needs to be. And right. if there's ever any question in my mind or concern, she's been so great that the communication is very open. I can yeah. send her a message and she gets back to me and mm-hmm. it's a very positive relationship. Yeah, that is incredible. And it sounds like faith is so important to you and your family. And do you think that the prayers had anything to do with his heart? What, what do you think? Um, I think that had everything to do with why he's never had surgery and why honestly he's still with us to this day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cause if you were to look at just the science and what the doctors were telling us, um, I mean, you could see it on the screen, like it was not good. Wow. It just wasn't good. And he didn't even come home on oxygen. Right. Which wow. even some of our 22Q babies who don't have our heart issues still come home on oxygen. Right. So how many days was he in the NICU? So he was there just shy of two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm sure felt like months. It did. Um, and our biggest concern at that point in time was feeding. So we still didn't have a diagnosis at this point. And he, um, for the most part, was okay. He just was having a hard time keeping down his feeds and um, taking in enough volume to support growth and weight. Mm -hmm. So they really wanted us to come home on an NG tube. And my husband's a nurse. So he was like, that's, you know, he felt very comfortable with it. And even though I had spent a long time in healthcare, I was always on the clinic side. I was never on the hospital side. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Like if I 
they're like, we'll train you. It's okay. Like you can do this. Watch me. And I thought if I put this tube down and it goes into his lung instead of his stomach, like I'm going to, like, it's not going to go well. He's going to get really sick and that's going to be my fault. And I just, I could not mentally like get over that. So I was doing everything in my power <laughs> to not get the NG tube. Um, so we ended up just giving him very small amounts. I had a nurse show me how to kind of lay him on his side so that his uh, formula would kind of pool in his cheeks so he wouldn't get as choked as much and then just allowing him the time to swallow on his own. So that's what we did. And that was what gave us the freedom to go home. Wow. Um, so how long did, it, yeah. So like, as you're doing this technique of laying him sideways, how long would it take him to take, for example, like two? Oh gosh. Two ounces. All day. I just felt like I was continually feeding him all day and all night. Like there wow. was very little time in between feedings, I guess. Um, yeah. Because at that time, like I tried really hard to breastfeed him and he just didn't have the motor coordination down to do it. Um, so it was, I was either feeding him or pumping. There wasn't a whole lot of in between time at all. Mm -hmm. And that pretty quickly progressed into, um, he, I would say by six weeks old, I noticed a significant issue with constipation. Right. And I remember taking him to our pediatrician and I said, there's something wrong. Like the kid can't have a bowel movement. Like it's, it's a struggle. And she reassured me that, you know, constipation was the most common thing she treated in kids. And I thought, okay, well, this is my third kid, like even for a six week old, like this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point in time, I was pretty much giving, we had transitioned over to formula. So we had tried all different kinds of formulas and nothing was changing. And then the nasal reflux really was kicking into high gear. So something that um, I had never really seen before him is just so much reflux. And when he would reflux, it would all come out his nose. And then sometimes he would choke on it. And we <sighs> took him to the ER once because we were worried about aspiration, um, you know, and getting aspiration pneumonia and going down that road. Um, mm -hmm. And it just, the older he got, it just didn't get any better. The volume just became more. And the poor guy was just miserable all the time. And he still couldn't have a bowel movement. So he was that first year, honestly, it was like a blur. So like no sleep. And he just was in pain all the time. Um, and without going into a whole lot of detail, finally, we were trying to transition um, from purees into purees that had a little bit of like diced carrot or pea or something. Um, and he, it was to the point that there, it was very obvious that he could not pass that solid uh, piece of food. And so we had an appointment for G him to CGI and have a colonoscopy done. And doing a colonoscopy prep with a one-year-old is not fun <laughs> at all. No. Anyway, so we take him in to have his colonoscopy. And the doctor came out about four minutes later. I was like, what happened? Like you couldn't have done anything in that four minutes. And he's like, well, I already know what the problem is. And I was like, well, great. What is it? And he um, said the opening to his rectum was only about 20% the size of what it should have been. He said, I can't even get my scope in there. 
So this uh, is what it is. It was very um, kind of superficial. So nothing super involved, nothing like had to be reconstructed or anything, just widened per se. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So we will get him scheduled and we'll just keep an eye on it when he's healing. And this should be the end of it. Yeah. And, and was so it? We, we had that surgery done and it was like, they gave me a brand new baby back. Oh, it was just night and day. Like he was so happy. Oh, we weren't God. spending 24 hours a day crying all the time because he oh. was in pain. Um, and then you throw in, you know, him not like hitting his milestones that first year. And we thought, okay, well, is it the heart defect? Like Right. that can cause babies to be delayed or is it because he's in so much pain all the time mm-hmm. like he can't do tummy time because he'll reflux and aspirate or he can't sit because his rectum is hurting all the yeah. time um so we didn't go a whole lot of places because he just cried all the time so I remember calling my mom at one point in time I was at home and I said can you just bring me a package of diapers like we're out and she's like, yeah, not a problem. So she was able to go to the store and drop off, uh, you know, package diapers for me. And um, thank goodness we had a great support system of family and friends nearby because I honestly don't remember, like, did I even cook meals during that time? I don't even know. Somehow my family ate the rest of us and stayed alive. But <laughs> they figured it out. <laughs> I don't remember a whole lot of that year. <laughs> yes. I, I feel the same about the first year. Had. Uh, the surgery to to fix his rectum and he healed and everything um I was like okay we can like take a breath of fresh air like we're we're maintaining at this point like his heart is stable you know we got this fixed he's not writhing in pain the reflux had really settled down um and then so again, we go back into cardiology because we're still seeing her very frequently at that point in time. And Dr. Farrell looked at me and she said, she kept making comments about his ears. He has little ears. And I was like, well, he has a little mouth. Like that's just how he's made. And she's mm-hmm. like, well, there's a high chance because of his heart issue that that coincides with the genetic syndrome. So I finally, at that time, was able to have the headspace to even consider that. And I was like, okay, so what does, what does this mean? Like, how do we test for any syndrome? And she's like, it's just a blood test. Um, it takes, you know, a little bit of time because they're going to test for all kinds of things and it just takes time to come back. So I was like, okay, we'll get his blood drawn. Um, no big deal. And we actually, I think that was the first time we actually ever traveled with Lincoln. We went to my best friend's house, um, in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and spent some time with them. And so we were there, like we hadn't seen them in forever and just really enjoying this new stage of life. Right. <laughs> and right. I got a phone call from the geneticist while I was there and um, the kids were all playing and I just very casually picked up the phone thinking it's an appointment reminder or what have you. And they're like, oh, this is so-and-so from the genetics department. And I was like, oh, Okay hi, you know, what's going on? Not really thinking anything of it. And they're like, oh, we have your test results back. And I was like, okay. So they said he was born with DeGeorge syndrome, also known as 22Q. And I remember looking for something to write on and I couldn't find anything. So I just grabbed, like I had a pen in the diaper bag. I went and grabbed that and I found a napkin and I was like, okay, tell me again what this is. So I'm writing this 
big diagnosis down on this napkin. I was like, tell me how you spell it and everything. And I was like, okay, now what? And they're like, well, you just need to go see a developmental pediatrician. And I said, well, how are they different than my regular pediatrician? Well, they'll just make sure that you are um, kind of seeing who you need to see. Like if you need to go see any specialists, they'll make sure you're referred out appropriately. And I thought, okay, at that point in time, that's just adding one more doctor to our already crazy life of doctors and therapists and appointments. And I thought, I, I don't think we need to see this person, but I was just like, okay. And then we hung up. That was it. That was my introduction to our diagnosis. And I called my husband and I was like, okay, we have a diagnosis. I know nothing about it. There was no resources given, no information given other than just a name. Mm-hmm. So like many other moms, I spent from there on out researching everything that I could find out about those. Um, and what did you think when you first started researching? I just remember thinking nobody, like, this is so rare. That was the first thing that stood out to me is how rare it was. And I felt so kind of lost in this big world. And here I have this child with syndrome and no one really kind of knew what to do with it. Um, So our first step was going back to our pediatrician uh, because at this point in time, I'd still decided we didn't need to deal with developmental pediatrics. Um, so we go back in and again, I remember her walking in and her, her jaw kind of hit the floor. Why? And she, she was not expecting anything really to come back either. And she said, okay. She's like, I have seen a few other, um, patients with this and it's not very common. And we really started to evaluate what kind of happened up until that point. And she's like, this explains kind of everything that we had gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really opened up the door. Having that name really opened up the door for uh, to learn about more, I don't want to call opportunities, but to be aware of more challenges that would come up later mm-hmm. down the road. Mm-hmm. How did that make you feel getting that diagnosis? Like, did it feel like relief? Did it feel like a giant monster on your shoulders that you had no idea how to tackle? Like how, what were you thinking in that moment? How'd that make you feel when you finally got that diagnosis? So when they gave me the diagnosis, I don't, I can't honestly say that I was, I had a feeling of like heaviness or relief because I wasn't given any information, like zero information. They literally said, oh, here's this name. Uh, Go see developmental peds. I was like, okay. So to me, that was no different than saying like, you have high blood pressure. Okay. Go see your doctor. I was like, okay. (laughs) And I was at my friend's house that we hadn't seen. So I just, um, we really enjoyed our time together and I really didn't start deep diving deep into it and researching and finding out more until we got home. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that research is when I found the 22Q Family Foundation, um, just mm-hmm. through research and Google searches somewhere, somebody had mentioned something and I thought, okay, I need to look into this. Um, and then I was able to meet through social media, um, another mom who actually, um, it, like Megan, um, 
light for Levi's mom was the very first mom that I met with a child with 22 Q. Um, and she actually small, crazy world graduated a year ahead of me at the same high school. I mean, it was a huge school. We didn't, so we didn't know each other Yeah, and only lived, you know, a few minutes away from me. So being able to speak to someone who was also going through this journey was a huge, that part was a huge relief. I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, at least I'm not alone in this right now. Like if I had a question, um, or like, who are you seeing for, you know, ENT, who are you seeing for therapy or what's working or what's not working? That was a huge help. She's the one that told me about the very first 22Q moms retreat. At the time I was a stay at home mom and things financially were really tight, but I just looked at my husband. And I said, I need to go. Like I need to meet these other moms and figure out what this means. Like, cause we're still, we're very much in the throes of doctors and therapy and trying to keep him healthy. Um, basically just trying to keep him alive every day was that we were still that like lasted for so long. I feel like with a typical newborn that lasts like the first year ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our situation, it was probably the first almost four years of his life. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of going and dealing with everything. And I said, I just, I need to go and learn. I need to learn from these other moms because mm-hmm. they know more than any of these doctors that we've seen. And that was something I, I wasn't expecting when we got the diagnosis and we had to go to ENT or we had to go to GI was educating the doctors on what this genetic syndrome is and mm-hmm. what that means and how they're created differently. I did not expect that naively, probably. Right. Um, you know, and probably no fault of their own per se. They can't know everything. There's so many rare syndromes, but it just, that's what surprised me the most mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this whole thing was having to educate these doctors who I, at the time held on a very high pedestal. Right. Right. And with many people, I know for myself too, you look at a doctor and they tell you something and you're, and you say immediately say, Oh, okay. You don't yeah. question them. But right. I feel that as, as special needs moms and, and 22 Q moms, you quickly learn that go with your gut sort of yes. instincts. Have yes. you ever had to follow your gut with maybe a different diagnosis, a doctor said, and then get a second opinion? Yes. And that yeah. was probably the, the hardest thing or most awkward conversation I've had to have. Um, and that was for Lincoln was diagnosed with VPI, like several of our 22Q kiddos. VPI is velopharyngeal insufficiency. So what that means is their um, palate in their mouth does not move back and forth like your yours and mine and, and most people's. So when we speak and we have to kind of close off our airway to make more of those explosive sounds like the P's and the B's and the D's, their palate doesn't move. So they're not able to get that um, closure. So especially like if you think about eating, your palate automatically moves back to close off your airway typically. So you don't choke. That's just a function of our body that everyone, it just happens. And um, we don't necessarily know it's happening until it doesn't. Um, And then you take a drink of water and you start choking on it unexpectedly, or you swallow something and choke on it. Um, But in these kids who have EPI, that palate doesn't move back and forth as well as it should. So in Lincoln's case, his was not closing off that 
um, part of the airway when it needed to. So they can do a surgery um, called the flap, a flap repair, where they can kind of extend that palate and they kind of attach it to the back of the throat. And they leave two ports for your airway on either side, on both sides, so that you can still have, you can still breathe because that's important to living. <laughs> yes, a little bit. But, but then they have that, um, they have the closure that they're, that they need to be able to eat and drink safely as long, as well as clearing up their speech. Mm-hmm. That helps them make, uh, not so, sounds so nasally all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, speech clarity yeah. and food safety is a huge priority and benefit yeah. of, the, of the surgery. Yeah. So the first ENT group, we met with our local children's hospital and they gave me this big fancy cranial facial team that had an ENT, it had a plastic surgeon. They sold it. They put it in a really pretty package. And I thought, wow, we are meeting with the people that know this. They know how to, they know everything. Like we saw like four people in this um, group. We're, we're in great hands. And this particular ENT came in and he put a glove on, he put his finger in Lincoln's mouth and he felt the roof of his mouth. And he said, he doesn't have a cleft palate. There's no hole there. Oh. And I was like, okay but from like the research that I've done like you can have you know other issues that you can't see or necessarily feel um so I went to get a second opinion we went to another local hospital that was highly recommended and we saw the ENT there and he said yes he does in fact have this VPI and we can schedule him for this surgery and I can see him next week and I was like whoa whoa I was not expecting to like make this decision of this surgery, um, this quickly. So I thought, okay, cause what do you do no. <laughs> when a doctor has so much more education than you do in this area Yeah, for the word? So I scheduled his surgery. I didn't, I felt very rushed about it. Yeah. And I was like this, I'll go ahead and just schedule it. And then I'll go home and, and think about it. So I went home And I told my husband, he was like, okay, you know, out of the two of us, I'm the one that like tends to worry and overthink about everything. And he's just like, it'll work out. It'll be okay. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, so I go home and I'm like, okay, so there actually aren't that many physician or ENT surgeons who do a lot of these. So I called back and I said, I'm really sorry to have to ask this, but can you tell me like how many cases this doctor has done? And man, did the nurse beat around the bush about it. And I was like, again, okay, I've been in healthcare long enough to know she's buying time. And she was, I was very polite. I just, I said, can you just give me like, I just want to know how many cases he's done to give myself some peace about um, my child. I said, his anatomy is very different and very unique. Things can be in different places, um, just the way they're created. And so she was like, well, I need to talk to him and then I'll give you a call back. And it was a week later. Like I, at that point oh, I called boy. back and I had canceled his surgery. I was like, we're just going to pause on this. So she called me and she's like, well, he's done. And she never gave me an exact number, but he's done a lot of cases and he knows he's very familiar and everything. And my red flags are going up. Right. I, said, I appreciate you checking into it, but we're not going to be, re- we're not going to be scheduling anything at this time. Um, and through the research that I'd done, I found out that 
Um, Cincinnati Children's Hospital had a 22Q 22Q clinic specifically for these kids. Mm-hmm. And I thought, great, they know what they're doing. They've heard right. of this. I don't have to educate them on all the differences and, and needs that we have. So we um, set up an appointment with Cincinnati. We drove over there, met with genetics. And that was probably my first sigh of relief going mm-hmm. into a team doctor appointment. Mm-hmm. We met with the geneticist. We met with the ENT team because that was my main concern at the time. Um, and it was just a huge sigh of relief for them to be able to say, we specialize in these kids. People come to us from all over. You know, it's not that we have seen it once or twice and done one or two of these flap repairs, you know, in our professional uh, career. We do this all the time. Mm-hmm. We understand that they're created differently, that there are higher needs, um, risks, concerns. And so that was very reassuring. So mm-hmm. he had his first flap repair and it was done by the head of the team at the time. Mm-hmm. And we go home and we, I noticed that like, he's having some long pauses mm-hmm. uh, when he's sleeping and his breathing. And I thought this is, this is concerning. Mm-hmm. And then he sounded like he was snoring just if he was, it was like lying on the couch, like just watching his iPad or just relaxing. If he had mm-hmm. his chin uh, tucked mm-hmm. a little bit and not necessarily at a 90 degree angle. Like it sounded like he was really struggling to breathe. And I thought, what is happening? Like, this is not good. If the kid's awake and he still can't breathe, we're like we have some problems. Mm-hmm. And so I called him um, and they're like, well, let's wait till the swelling goes down. Everything's very swollen still from surgery. Um, and let's get a sleep study done in a couple of weeks to see if we need to add maybe a CPAP. Does he have sleep apnea that maybe we possibly made worse, which we knew was a risk going into the surgery because they um, are closing off part of the airway. That's just part of the surgery. And I, so we agreed, we let the swelling go down and it got a little bit better. Um, he had the sleep study done and it definitely showed some moderate sleep apnea. Um, but I was still very concerned with the daytime issues mm-hmm. and sounding like he was snoring while he was awake. So we go back to Cincinnati and had um, another scope done in the office, which if you've never had this done with your child, it is not fun. And it took me plus... I think two other people holding him, but I will say because they do this all the time, it was quick, like maybe two minutes, like in, out, done. And they recorded the whole thing and were able to show me on a screen and slow it down. And they're like, oh, we see exactly what the issue is. Mm -hmm. When he had the flap repair done the first time, they made it a little too high and tight in his throat. So those two air... Um, ports that I was talking about that should be like a cir- circular shape, like on each side of the flap, mm-hmm. or more like a vertical slit. Gotcha. Okay. So he was not moving the air that he should be because it was just too tight. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, we need to just go in there and lower it a little bit, and that'll resolve this issue. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, the first surgery was pretty like it was pretty traumatic. Um, going back to the first surgery, we had an anesthesiologist who, um, over medicated him. 
So when he oh was coming gosh. out of, when he was, they called us back to recovery because Lincoln does not like anesthesia for some reason makes him very angry. Really? And yes. And how and old we, was he at this time? So he was probably, he was four. Okay. Four so years four old. Four year old who's very upset. And I told him, I said, when he wakes up or like, get me back to the recovery room before he wakes up because he is going to be angry and that just makes everything worse. And then you have this huge like incision in your throat that you don't, you're not supposed to like scream and have pressure. I'm like, he's going to freak out. So they brought me back there thankfully right as they were waking him up. So I was able to calm him pretty quickly. Um, but he, as he would like, he would wake up, you would see his stats go up. And then as he drifted off back to sleep, like there's long pauses to the point, like all the alarms are going off. Like I'm looking at my husband worried the nurse. I'm like, what is happening? Like in my mind, it always immediately goes to his heart. Like the medication affect his heart. Like what is his heart doing? Um, and turns out, um, uh, because my husband works in GI procedures, he deals with anesthesia. So he did a jaw thrust on him. (laughs) So, and that's just basically positioning your head and neck and jaw outward to open up your airway. (laughs) Now, no other parent is going to know how to do this unless you're an EMT or a nurse or a doctor. And I remember the recovery nurse kind of chuckling and she said, wow, that's the first time I've seen a parent do that on one of our kids. Yeah. But that opened up his airway because he was just, his body was getting too relaxed. So what we found out later was he was over, they dosed his medication way too high. And so they had to give him more medication to kind of reverse that effect. So that was very scary. Um, but again, you trust, you trust the team. And Mm -hmm. I think that, I don't think this particular anesthesiologist was bad. Um, we don't harbor any ill feelings or anything. I think she just had a pre-calculated dose for his height and weight and didn't take into consideration, um, anything else he had going on, which was unfortunately unfortunate but I mean he he came out of it it just took him a very very long time yeah wow so so going back into um them telling us that we needed to go through all this again I was like oh gosh Uh, but like it had to be done because we couldn't breathe so we go back and I was like okay so let's schedule with this doctor who did it and they're like oh well she's now taking this other position and not really doing surgeries anymore I was like uh, great <laughs> yeah so we're gonna give you to doctor so-and-so and they couldn't pronounce his name and again because I've been in healthcare long enough I'm like okay well obviously he's new because nobody knows how to pronounce this guy's name right right <laughs> like, nobody's really worked with him I'm like exactly great. Yep. Now they're giving us to someone who has probably not the most experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to your question of like, what was one of the hardest things I've had to do? And I've had to, like, I had a Zoom call with this, this surgeon who his professional resume looked amazing. Um, I'm not going to lie. And I said, please forgive me. Like, this is no ill will towards you. I said, but we've already gone through this once and didn't have a great 
outcome. Mm-hmm. So we're going in to revision and I really don't want to be here a third time. So I said, can you tell me your experience in doing this? And I was very, very hesitant. And it made me feel about this big questioning the surgeon. And I give him so much credit because he took this conversation so well and so respectfully. And he's like, I understand where you're coming from as a parent, not wanting to put your child through this. And so we had a very long conversation. And so he actually brought, agreed to bring in um, probably the most senior surgeon they had on their team. That's wonderful. He, he said, if it's okay with you, I would still like to be in there with him and be a part of them, be a part of this. Um, but this other physician will be the main surgeon. I said, absolutely. I said, I just, I said, I'm really sorry. I don't feel comfortable with you being the only one in there. Um, mm-hmm. And, and how, up, no, but like that takes so much <laughs> guts to do. I mean, to be able to do that for like a surgeon, I, I have high respect for surgeons and doctors and nurses yeah. and, and I am nowhere close to as educated as them, but it, that takes a lot for it, a parent it, to it advocate, but it also took a lot. I like for him to come up with a solution respectfully because how many, I mean, there's so many situations that that could have ended very poorly. Right. I'm so, I'm so thankful that he approached it as a learning personal. No, he didn't take it personal and he really respected my concerns and my wishes. Right. So, um, it ended up being a very beautiful thing. So Lincoln had his revision. It went extremely well. We um, voiced our concerns with anesthesia. We made sure we had a different anesthesiologist. Um, The gentleman that we had this go around was able to look at Lincoln's chart and he said, oh yeah, I can see what happened and um, we'll make sure that that doesn't happen again. Good. And that particular medication um, is one that is common that they use a lot for anesthesia in general. So we just, at this point, tell everybody like, go very lightly with it because it just makes his body not like to breathe when he's on it. Right. Right. That's good to um, know for future operations yes. and procedures for sure. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, this new, I don't want to call him new. He was new to the group. Um, physician was in there with an older gentleman. They did a surgery. Great. No issues. And that's who we is his primary ENT that we mm-hmm. see now, um, for not only the VPI, but for the tubes in his ears and, and other issues. <laughs> good, good. So how many operations has Lincoln had? Oh gosh. Um, honestly, I feel like I have lost count at this point. There was a time that I could keep track of because our local children's hospital that we used to go to a lot would give him uh, a special pillow each time he had to have anesthesia and they let the kids take him home. They're super cute little animals that are sewn by volunteers and donated. So at one point, like we lined his crib with these little pillows because I didn't know what else to do with them. Um, So honestly, it was just very visually easy for me to keep track of. So, so like over 20, I don't think he's had over 20 surgeries. I think he's been under sedation more than 20 times. Yes. Um, And that, 
in my mind gets a little blurred of like, did they actually do something that time or was this just like testing? Um, right. A scope and x-ray yes. uh, MRI. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. His first MRI he had done had to be sedated because he was eight months old going back to the like unable to poop issue. They thought he had something called Hirschsprungs, okay, which is like where your nerve endings don't fully develop um, in your colon and mm -hmm. you're not able to have bowel movements because of that. Mm -hmm. So during that MRI, again, this is another hospital that we learned not to go to he's eight months old. He's a little like having all these issues. They sedate him. And again, we didn't have his diagnosis at this time. So my main concern was his heart. And anytime you like have a weak heart and anesthesia, it's very concerning. And so I feel like this was right before, just like days before Thanksgiving, I could be wrong about the timing, but there was some, something coming up. And the nurses were definitely very irritated that like we were there. And I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't schedule. This. Uh, and I, a, yeah. another anesthesiologist that came in that gave him the medication to sedate him for the MRI. He looked at me and he said, well, if anything happens, oh, and they wouldn't let me go back with him, by the way. Oh, My eight no. month old, they wouldn't let me go back. I was like, it's not surgery. He's having an MRI. Yeah. what's the harm? I'm not, you know, whatever. So wouldn't let me go back. And he came in and as they kind of wheeled him away, he looked at me and he said, well, because of his heart issues, if there's anything that happens, there's really not anything we can do. <gasps> uh-huh. Yeah. That what? was my reaction as well. I just, my eyes got really wide. I think my jaw hit the ground. I was like, what? And he was like, well, because of everything going on, like, I'm sure he'll be fine. <laughs> oh like, my so, gosh. So shocked. At, I can't believe this physician again, that has all this experience and education just looked at me and told me that the worst uh, yes. bedside manner ever. Yes. Yes. Oh so my, my mind is reeling again. I'm sure now I'm you're a mess. Now I'm back. a mess. And he, I hear Lincoln <sighs> crying. He's starting to wake up because he, I think this particular anesthesiologist did the opposite where he didn't maybe give him enough. Yeah. And I was like, just get, just let me come back there. Like I can reassure him. He'll go back to sleep right. a lot easier. And they still wouldn't let me go back. We're able to get him to go back to sleep, finish the MRI and came back out. Um, and then of mm -hmm. course he was slow to wake up because mm -hmm. he had all this extra medication on board. Oh man. Um, but then that's when they found out that he had a tethered cord as okay. well. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was something I had never heard of. You know, I was like, okay, yeah. again, tell me what this means. Yeah. Um, and his situation, um, I know everybody's, uh, degree varies and is different, but in Lincoln's situation, they were like, well, you need to go to see um urology mm -hmm. and i was like because a lot of the times this can affect um if they're able to like hold a full bladder or not um and and this could affect his kidneys and so on so we go to urology we have all kinds of testing done and they said we're actually really glad that this was an incidental finding because he wasn't having any UTIs or anything. Um, he said the first thing you probably would have noticed, and he's only like 
18 months at this point, um, is you would have never been able to potty train him because of the way the spinal cord was, and you're going to have to look this up specifically. Um, like pulling. Yes. I think because of the way it was pulling and the nerve endings, whatnot, um, he wouldn't have been able to hold a whole bladder and you would have just had continual kind of voiding all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a send us to neurosurgery to have this, um, surgery done. And our neurosurgeon was amazing. She's actually a, was a former, she originally went to school to be a nurse and was a nurse and then went back to school to become this neurosurgeon. Wow. So I just so appreciate her experience as a nurse and as a doctor. And Mm -hmm. she was fantastic, was able to explain everything easily. And thankfully his was fairly mild. Um, So he had that surgery uh, done and recovered. And it was actually during his recovery from that when he got his 22Q diagnosis. Wow. What a whirlwind of <laughs> his first like two years. I mean, yeah. it sounds like it was just doctor appointments and new specialists and new yeah. surgeons and new diagnoses. Yeah. Um, as a seven and a half year old now, what is Lincoln's like medical challenges, like feeding heart? What, what, what are the big things he's challenged with on a daily basis? So feeding, we're pretty much over the hurdle with, there are a few things that we know he still has a hard time eating and it's, it's the chewing. He's very low tone. Um, and that affects you head to toe. It's not just like in your core and your arms and your back, it's everything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't think of, um, your jaw and tongue, like your tongue is a muscle. People, I think, forget that. Um, and your jaw needs strength. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, has a hard time chewing uh, meat per se. Mm-hmm. So even like if we have like grilled chicken or something, like I cut it up super, super small still um, for mm-hmm. him to be able to chew it safely. Mm-hmm. And we had um, like pulled pork sandwiches and I thought, okay, it's pulled, it's shredded, like it'll be okay. But even that required enough chewing, he choked on that. So choking is a very real fear of mine because it has happened so much. Same. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, we live at a time that he can get protein a million other different ways. So I don't stress it. It's not a huge deal. Um, for us. What is his diet like? Like, what are his like go-to? Because I know from talking to other 22Q moms, there's always like three things that our kiddos love. What are his? Yes. He loves peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. And I'm so thankful for that because I'm, I can get behind that breakfast, lunch, dinner. I don't care. At least he's getting some protein. <laughs> yep. That is a definite go-to. Um, macaroni and cheese, just like most seven and a half year olds, he loves And that's considered like a safe food for him. Like I don't have to worry about him eating that. And for the most part, he's generally not a picky eater. He may say, he may say, oh, I don't like that. Or I don't want to try that. But in our house, like we, like, you're going to try what the rest of us eat. (laughs) Yeah. No, thank you. Bye. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And then if you don't like it, then you don't have to eat it. Mm -hmm. So now that you've talked about the medical challenges that Lincoln's face. What are some physical challenges that he's facing? Like anything with mobility, OT, PT, speech, toileting? 
So he was potty trained um, when he was over four. Like I remember thinking at the time, like I got to get him potty trained. We took um, what I call a gap year in between preschool and kindergarten. We did, um, he was in developmental preschool for a few years. And then traditionally they would send him from that in our school community to kindergarten and mm-hmm. I was like wait this is a lot like you can't expect a kid to go from two hours a day three days a week to eight hour day long of kindergarten and he was still very delayed especially in speech and fine motor um so we got to come up with something different so he actually ended up going to a year at our community preschool that's mm-hmm. what I consider our gap year mm-hmm. um and he they really worked on things like um care, just being able to walk through the lunch line with a tray being able to right. walk and push your tray and pick out the food that you were going to eat and then being able to carry that tray from the lunch line to a table without dropping it because I thought there's no way this kid's gonna get one foot from the lunch line if he hasn't spilled his tray before that point yeah I'm um, just really, I had to really approach the school with like functional goals. Like we really need to work on this functional stuff before we can even entertain the idea of kindergarten. Yep. No, that's Um, smart. So we worked on that. And during that year, that gap year is when he had the VPI repair done. So his speech came a long way Mm -hmm. after that repair was done. There are still a few times now, even at seven and a half, I'm like, I'm not sure what you said, or I'll tell him, I'm like, slow down. Um, and then if I still don't get it, I'll ask him to think of a different word for what he's trying to tell me. Mm-hmm. And typically, if I have the context, I can figure out what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is, he still goes to speech privately um, once a week. Mm-hmm. He has private OT once a week because fine motor things are very hard still. Mm-hmm. So holding a pencil the correct way, being able to write your letters, write a sentence, things that they're doing in first grade that most people don't think about, you know, write a sentence about, or, or even just draw a picture about what you did this weekend. Um, it became a fight very early on, even in kindergarten, because it was hard. Right. And if, if he was experiencing so much frustration um, because of how hard it was, he just kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. So then that turned into like what the school was calling like a refusal. And so. I just did was, an eye roll for those yes. who can't see my face. I did a big eye roll, <laughs> we but continue, went, Lindsay. <laughs> we went from. Yeah. So we ended up the very end of kindergarten. I got this email and it was talking about all these behaviors that he's having and refusals. And I thought this is my joyful kid who mm-hmm. the only time I ever truly see him upset is like when like a medical procedure is being done or, or something. He's just, he has a love for life. Like I've not seen in anyone. And he just, he, he's a people pleaser and he generally mm-hmm. loves people. And I was like, what you're telling me is not making sense. And I said, can I come in and just observe? Um, And in our particular kindergarten classroom, there wasn't a way that I could observe without him knowing. So I tried to sneakily, like while they were reading, like just kind of step in the corner of the room. 
And that last one, maybe seven minutes before he saw me. <laughs> exactly. Right. Oh. Um, which was, so I said hi to him and I said, I'm just here to watch and help out. I'm here to help the teachers. So I think I started like folding some papers or something to make it look <laughs> like I was like working for the teacher and not yeah. there to watch him. Um, so I, and then I saw it and he was sitting there and he, it was time for them to draw a picture and write a sentence. And he just, he just, you could just see him physically shut down. <laughs> it was, you know, everything from, he didn't even want to color because it was hard to hold the crayon and he didn't want to draw a picture because it was hard to do, which then led into, I can't write a sentence because I didn't draw my picture. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just started, he just started shutting down. I was like, okay, I had asked the school before this happened about a program on an iPad where you can take the iPad and take a picture of a worksheet. And then you can use the iPad to do whatever you need on the worksheet. You can use the iPad. It's kind of like paint where you can just tap the colors and draw a picture with your finger. And you can type in um, the sentence you need like on the um, worksheet, but it's all done on this program on iPad. I'm like, can we bring this in for things that is maybe a longer assignment or harder to do? And I was met with like resistance. And I will say that was probably the first like quote unquote fight I've had with school. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, well, it's really important that he learns how to write his letters the correct way and that he practices writing to build up that hand strength. And I, as I acknowledge that, I said, yes, I agree with you. He does need to learn how to do all this. However, if there's a longer assignment and we're having what you're telling me is like behaviors because it's hard, very hard to do. That's when we need to bring this program in so he can accomplish the assignment. He's still learning mm -hmm. and then we're done and we're not having this huge issue that's dragging out into the right. remainder of the day. Right. Um, so I go in and observe him with these things and I look over and you know he's melting down about doing this worksheet and I look over and there's another student I see who's using that program that I had asked for get out and I was like stay cool stay cool don't get mad <laughs> what's the name of the program I will have to double check I think it was we'll called, look it up and we'll let our listeners know I think it was snap I think it's snap type pro but okay. i'll have to double check on that hi bud hi how are you feeling good good what were you watching pg mass who's your favorite the red i don't um i don't know you don't know okay is that your favorite show if i out yeah and try out and we watched that movie a while I have. I have seen Inside Out. It's a good one. Uh, well, Cars 2. I haven't seen Cars 2. I saw Cars well, 1. Well, Cars 3 or 2. Cars 3 or 2. I haven't. I'll have to you check should, them out. You should search for them. I will. It's on, it's, which count is on? Like which on one? Your, which count is on like your family's one? 
So our Disney Plus it's on is our, different. It's on my, yeah, we have one account. Kids. We have we have a Disney Plus account and we have one. Here one. Yeah. My son doesn't go around. So we just share the same one. So okay. all of them are on there. Okay. I need to finish. We're almost done. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Lincoln. <laughs> hey, wait, Lincoln, can I ask you one more question? What? What's your favorite thing about your mom? I forgot. Is she sweet? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Is she the best mom ever? Yep. Yeah. yeah, she sure is. Aww. <laughs> Lincoln, it's so nice to meet you. I hope we can Thanks. hang out soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Give me a few more minutes. Um, He's so handsome. Thanks. <laughs> That's what I mean by like, he generally like, he will talk to people all day long. And it's just a natural gift that I don't have. My husband doesn't have. So we're like, where did you come from? <laughs> Bring him to dinner parties. <laughs> he can be the one that talks to everybody. Yes. So I just wanted to ask, you know, for the educational process, we don't have to go through the whole thing, but for new families, just getting into this, what are some tips? Like if you have a couple tips for new families in the education system, once your kid gets older, what are some oh, things you've learned that you really found helpful? So him being only seven and a half, we're still fairly new into the school system, but just because of where I work and the clients we serve, um, I mean, it's daily that I hear different needs that either are being met or not being met in the school systems and how to go, go about it. So I feel like I have been kind of at an advantage uh, because when they tried to push Lincoln from developmental preschool to kindergarten, I knew that there was this other opportunity that they didn't advertise and that, I mean, it's, it all comes down to money. The schools don't have a lot of money. Um, so I knew I had to really ask for it and um, kind of plead my case. And I said, he really needs to be in this preschool program for this year. And this is why. And um, from speaking to other parents, I knew that they saved two spots that were paid for by the school for kids like Lincoln. Um, so again, I research and I, I try not to take no for an answer. So I guess one of my biggest pieces of advice for new families, whether it's with doctors or the school system, if you feel in your gut that something is not right or that you need something different, that you try not to be afraid to ask for it. And if you're not comfortable asking for it yourself, because that can be very intimidating, whether it's physicians or schools, honestly, um, try to find someone who can help you advocate for your kid. Absolutely. So because I already knew someone who said, no, actually they can't do this for you. I was able to walk in there and I said, this is what I would like to see happen and why, you know, and it's important that you go in there with, um, a positive attitude and tone, Absolutely. I not, was say that. not necessarily like anger. Yeah. Um, or, or anything like that. Um, because you will definitely get uh, a better response with, um, I don't know, being more polite, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can also be polite, but also stand your ground. Absolutely. Well. And, and also educate them. 
because maybe they have never seen a kid with 22 Q. Yes. Um, So educate them on how different our kiddos are when they're learning. Yes. So going back to what you just said, like, you know, educating them. So when I did that kindergarten observation and I look over and I see another child using this system, I'm trying not to get upset. His, their OT um, came into the room and was working with them and, and was showing me different tricks tips and tricks that they use with him for different things. And I said, why are we not using this program that I asked for for Lincoln? You, you've already got it in the classroom. One student's already using it. Why are we not making this available? And that's when she quickly started backpedaling, like fervently. She was like, oh, uh, well, we're supposed to do this, but um, you know, I'm just going to have you sign this paper right now so that we can go ahead and start the evaluation. And I'll just ask for forgiveness later. And as I'm talking with her, we're filling out the this form that he's got to get this um, evaluation done for um, this technology to be used in the classroom. She looked at me and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, I forget Lincoln has this diagnosis because he doesn't he doesn't look like it or he doesn't look like he has this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that right there is the problem, mm-hmm. because unless you know what you're looking for, they don't typically look like there's anything um different about them Mm -hmm. in a way it would be easier to explain or not have to explain or justify if your kid is melting down or Mm -hmm. or you know why are they five years old and they can't talk and just it would really eliminate a lot of that right from teachers and strangers and Mm -hmm. honestly family members like there's been some very hurtful things I know that my family is not unique to this um and and it all comes from a place of good intention but you know I definitely have had remarks of like hey what do you do all day this was when I was you know just trying to keep him alive or um someone telling him at a family function, well, you just need to use your words. And if there's one trigger phrase, that is it. When I hear someone say, just use your words. No, it is not that. Not that simple. If it (laughs) was that simple, simple. (laughs) I would have already done that. Yeah. Or like really frustrating. He's he's been in speech for a couple of years. So he's like good now. Right. Yeah. Well, no, it doesn't work like that. Oh my gosh. No. What is a big trigger for you? I know that as, as 22Q parents, there are some things for many of us, there are different things that having medically fragile kids, there are some things that trigger us. What is some of yours? Um, one of them, I phrase. Did, <laughs> yes. So I definitely use that, use the words. One of them was actually, um, <laughs> and I, I feel a little bad for reacting this way, but during those early that first year of life again when I said we were just going through so much with him you know my husband working 12 hours a day I have two older kids we're just trying to like stay alive at this point like and I don't really remember a whole lot from that year but I do remember my oldest daughter coming home from school and she's like hey mom my teacher showed us a really funny video on class today for our brain break so this particular teacher um was like I have our kids your kids at this point in the day and it's just good to give them like a brain break and then we go into our what we're learning about um which I had already known about uh, at the beginning of the year I'm like okay fine 
And I was like, really, show me, you know, what this video was. And she pulls up YouTube and she shows me the title of the video and it's called Dumb Ways to Die. And it's cartoon illustrations of these characters. And I don't remember a whole lot about it other than it just shows them like dying in very silly situations. It's meant to be funny. Like Mm -hmm. it's meant to not carry a whole lot. And I got so angry and I just said, you need to turn that off. I said, we don't watch stuff like that. Um, And we're just going to be done with it. There's plenty of other things that um, you could be watching and, and spending your time with. And we're not like a family that is so strict that like we shield our kids from everything. So keep that, keep that in mind. So I thought, okay, sit mm-hmm. on this. Like, I'm not going to email a teacher. And again, I'm not one that typically ever contacts the school or teachers because mm-hmm. I firmly believe that they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, okay, just sit on this for 24 hours <laughs> and see how yeah. I feel in the morning. And I immediately was just angry. I'm like, here I am. I was at one point like planning a funeral for my unborn child because that's what we were told. And I spent his um, first year, and this was during that first year. And I, here I am every day doing, spending every moment of my day and night just keeping this kid alive. Mm-hmm. Like, and this teacher had no way of knowing that. No. Um, and she was very well loved in our community. Um, and I, 24 hours came, I was still very upset. And I, so I emailed her and I said, listen, um, my daughter came home and told me about this video that you showed the class for your brain break. I'm just, I'm extremely disappointed and, and very upset about it. I said, please remove that from what you show them. I said, there's literally millions of videos that you could be showing them that are, would be a brain break. Um, and I said, honestly, I'd rather you remove her from the room or she can stare at a wall than listen or to watch this. I said, this is what's going on in our life. We take death very seriously at our home. I said, I, and no, by no means expect you to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, that's part of it. Like in our situation, it's a sibling we're trying to keep alive or, you know, it could be somebody's parent. It could be somebody's grandparent going through something very heavy. So you have no way of knowing that. So this is where I'm coming from. And I just was very firm. And I said, please remove this. And basically like, I'm very disappointed. And at the time she was, she was a young teacher. She was newly married. She didn't have kids. So I try to give her a little bit of grace. Um, And she called me the next day and she said, Mrs. Head, and immediately I'm like, well, now I feel old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. said, I just want to let you know I got your email and I'm so sorry. I didn't um I didn't mean to mean anything by that. I just want to let you know that I only showed them a clip of that video. It wasn't the whole thing, but I have removed it from my repertoire of what I show them. So again, she apologized and it was just like until you walk the road, you just don't know. You just don't know. Um, and I said, I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry that, you know, the email was probably very harsh. <laughs> yeah, no, I... that, was, that was a definite trigger for me. So yeah. just, yeah. and I try to give people a little bit of grace because until I walked this road, I didn't understand what a special needs mom or life or family mm-hmm. even really looked like, you know, I didn't know anyone personally. Yeah. Um, so there was no way for me to know 
what goes on, you know, yeah. so I, I try to give people grace, but at the same time, I'm human right. <laughs> and have those uh, strong emotions sometimes. <laughs> what, yeah. What do you think, if any struggles that your family or friends may not even see as a parent of a 22 Q kid? Oh gosh. Um, scenario. just that um, like, it takes you longer to get out of the house. It takes, you have to be more careful, like going places. Cause you can get sick, like anything yes. you want, but so, things that people may not think. Yes. Yeah, so things like, um, friends inviting us over just for like Friday night bonfire, Saturday, you know, neighbors, you know, like, Hey, come over, hang out with us. You know, when the kids are in bed, um, and just having to say no repeatedly, not out of, I couldn't leave Lincoln while he was sleeping, like walking over to the neighbor's house. Cause we're, we're at the point now, like, or when this was happening a lot, um, I would take the baby monitor because the baby monitor would work in my neighbor's right way. Well, a lot of the parents would just like relax. Like once the kids went in bed, it was just hang around, hang out around a, bump, a little like patio fire or whatever. And I would have to say no nine out of 10 invitations because I was just exhausted, like just completely mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted. And I was like, I just didn't have the energy to sit and socialize um, about having, having to listen to take, to take your kid to soccer or so-and-so is at a sleepover, all these very normal kid activities. And I thought you're complaining about this when I'm complaining about being exhausted from doctor's appointments or recoveries from surgeries, or he's sick again for the fourth time in three days. Um, so no, when you have those discussions, you can lose friends very quickly. I have learned. Um, and that has been really hard seeing people who you thought were your really good friends and kind of steadfast people kind of just slowly disappear, um, because of the new demands that are put on you and your family. Mm-hmm. And, and not to say that those people are, are bad people or anything like that. It's just, they don't, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And it's when you can't relate to someone, I mean, you're typically, you can't say, you know, your life, your life is just going in two different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very, very difficult to kind of learn. And I guess I, for us, we didn't really realize it was happening until almost like after the fact, like there's so much things that need your media attention. I'm hanging out with friends was like, not even on the list. Yeah. Um, so then when you would get invited places or for us, like, you know, when you talk about these things, people just kind of look at you like a deer in headlights, like, like they're listening to you, but they don't really understand what you're saying and they don't know how to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, which again is no fault of their own because they mm-hmm. haven't walked this path. Right. So that, that is, is still pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, now that he's a little bit older, we're kind of transitioning out of the medical stuff and transitioning more into the educational concerns and 
and challenges that we're having to face there. So our stage of life looks a little bit different now. Um, and thankfully that I have been to two of these retreats and have met so of these amazing moms who just totally get it. And I'm so thankful that we have Zoom and have um, text messaging and, you know, it's easy to send a message because we never know what's going on in each other's lives. So I'm like, okay, you shall read it and get to me when she has a second. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just feeling connected. Yes. And that's and something like the older moms that I know you and I have both spoke to, they're like, we didn't have this. When our kids were little, there, yeah. there was no text messaging. There right. was no mom's retreat. There was no yeah. social media. They were truly, truly cut off. Right. Which I can't imagine. Just can't imagine. Yeah. So, so what keeps you going? You're very yes. strong in your faith. Yes. What keeps um, you going? You know, I feel like every day is different. Um, some days I just need a really long nap and that hardly ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, some days I can just like, I'm like, okay, I just need to lay down for a few minutes and then I will be able to like, just mm -hmm. process all this a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I rely heavily on my faith. If I did not have that, it would be extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a, a very very small circle of friends who truly understand, um, and get it. So, and you're one of them. Mm -hmm. Thanks. <laughs> so, you know, Water. it's, it's, uh, not that we're close in physical location, but just the fact that like, I know I can send um, a message or make a phone call at any point in time. And there's a group of you guys who are like, Hey, been there got it like I'm gonna mm -hmm. listen to you bet and and let you wallow in this for a few minutes but then at the same time I uh, reach out uh, reach out a hand and they're gonna say okay it's it's time to get up it's time to suck it up and and this is what you have to face so let's do it like yeah. I'm here to help you and to walk with you mm -hmm. yeah. but that's that yeah that's my support that keeps mm -hmm. me going likewise my friend and my last question for you is what has your 22q kiddo taught you? What has he taught me? So many things. The biggest thing is honestly, this is going to sound very cliche, but how to be a good human and how to be compassionate. Um, before him, I would have said that I was a caring person and on the outside, you would have been like, oh yeah, she's, she's really sweet. Um, and nice. I heard that a lot. You're really sweet and nice. And I'm like, again, before like, I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, does that mean I'm just like a doormat for everybody or, <laughs> or what? Um, but it was very looking back on it. I can say I, I was a pretty shallow uh, person. Part of that was being young, um, being a, a younger mom at the time and not really having to face any trials per se at that point. You know, when we had Lincoln and, and started this whole journey, uh, just how different our lives were, were going to be. I remember being at my father-in-law's house. I remember him telling me, he said, I think he said something like the reason why there's people created like Lincoln is to teach us, teach us compassion. He said, if you didn't have someone who needed a different way of learning or extra care to stay healthy. If everybody 
was pretty much the same. He said, you wouldn't have the level of compassion that you do now. So Lincoln has not only taught me and my family how to be very compassionate and understanding, um, empathy goes on there too. I really feel like I can empathize with with other families and individuals at a whole new level that I didn't even know existed before. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love it. <laughs> it's so true too with our kiddos. They're just so, they teach us so much, so much. And it's every day. They're just teaching us different things, but thank you so much for sharing Lincoln with us and your journey and your heart and your beautiful family. I want to thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so happy that you um, had the vision to create this because again, this is so needed yeah. for not only our community, but honestly, any any family that has to go through anything extra Yeah, <laughs> is how I usually phrase it to people. Like it's not you're just day in and day out stuff. It's anything that requires anything extra. Mm-hmm. It's hard. So like hard. find find your people, love them fiercely. And this is so great that you're doing this because thank you. We'll have the chance to listen to it and listen to it over and over again when they need to hear it. Yeah. So true. And that they're not alone and that this is happening all over the world. So, well, thank you again. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing Lincoln with us today. He is such a 22 Q warrior. And he is so lucky to have you as his mom. And for anyone who would like to contact me, you can reach me at 22qpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, or if you're interested on being on this podcast. Until next time, thank you again. Please share this and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And never forget, 22Q family, that you are not alone.